Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Hi, I'm Bill Tai. I'm a venture capitalist based in Silicon Valley and one of the original investors in companies like Zoom Video and Canva. Zoom, the, the pandemic, I mean, obviously it was horrible, but being invested in Zoom, that, that would have been amazing, right? You know, it was already amazing before the pandemic hit. Um, Zoom went public about a year and a half before the pandemic hit. And the, at the time it went public, it was already doing 300 million a year in trailing 12-month revenue at 80% gross margins and very profitable. And so it was already kind of the leader in its field from a usability and financial perspective. But uh, the pandemic just accelerated its usage worldwide. What was your first exposure to the startup world? And there was probably no vocabulary around it. Sure. Well, maybe there was when you first got involved. Uh, when I first got involved in what we would know as startups today, uh, I was coming out of college and I had been trained as uh, an electrical engineer with a specialty around semiconductor physics and computer chip design. And I came out to Silicon Valley in 1984 to join a startup which had been founded by the CEO of a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. And some of you that might have heard stories of Silicon Valley would know that, uh, that uh, Fairchild Semiconductor was kind of the genesis block of many of the other companies. Other companies that came out of Fairchild would, would be companies like Intel or Advanced Micro Devices or National Semiconductor, venture firms like uh, Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia Capital were formed by people that had come out of the Fairchild ecosystem. Yeah. And I joined uh, the startup founded by the CEO of Fairchild. Yeah, that, what would you say would be the, because there is that, you know, you do need that kind of company. Well, maybe you don't need it, but that has that exit and, and mints, you know, all these millionaires who then go to, to support the ecosystem and help build it. What would you say would be the equivalent in Australia? Is there an equivalent? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say there's one company, but I would say the examples that are being formed today in real time are companies like Atlassian. And uh, I'd say, you know, Canva is going to be one of those as well. But um, yeah, probably the closest thing there is is probably Atlassian with, you know, Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar being generous supporters of other entrepreneurs in the ecosystem starting companies. Uh, I think I heard that, and I don't know the, the specifics about this, but the Australian government, and I don't know if you know the specifics about this, you know, with the, the ability for uh, early employees to, to take shares, I think that was a problem that we had when Atlassian was formed. And I'm imagining that, that that wasn't the case in the US because you've got these companies like Fairchild that, uh, you know, minted all these millionaires. 
does is Atlassian doing the same because or is is the equity all tied up in you know the main founders of the company and not the employees uh it has been the case i think that silicon valley got its um you know got its momentum because there was a very egalitarian system stemming back to i think the 70s where the management teams of companies that were starting would set aside pretty good amounts of their share capital structure to give to employees that would join them. And I think because those companies worked and a lot of people did well financially, it sort of became you know part of the culture, ethos, and expectations of people from all over the country moving to Silicon Valley that you know they would have their shot at you know making a fortune by following their dreams. Um, by coming to California and joining companies led by young founders that were willing to share, rather than going to gigantic older corporations where their any ownership they could get was kind of a drop in the bucket. Jumping forward, what prompted your desire to come to Australia and start that? Um, you were you're now an adjunct professor at Curtin. What can you tell me that story? Yeah, it's not obvious, you know, so so through the 80s and 90s, I became a very passionate and addicted windsurfer and in the early 2000s converted to kiteboarding. And uh, by year 2000, I had already had my 19th company uh, that I had funded through venture funds become public companies and I basically had retired for a bit. And when uh, kiteboarding came into the water sports scene, uh, right around that time, I picked up the sport and I was always a pretty decent athlete and pretty good at water sports. So I picked up that sport immediately and just loved it. I got pretty good at it. I ultimately became a sponsored athlete in the sport. But along the way, everybody in the Valley knew that I was the venture guy that like to kiteboard. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. there was a, there is a person that's uh, pretty prominent in the Australian tech scene um, named Larry Lopez, who had worked at Silicon Valley Bank out here where, where uh, you know, a lot of the main tech investors are. He married an Australian woman, moved to Perth, and was setting up a uh, conference at um, to be held at Curtin University called Univation. And somehow I think Larry knew that I liked the kiteboard and, you know, Australia, Western Australia in particular is on kind of the bucket list for anyone in the sport. So he managed to network to me, called me and said, Bill, if you would be willing to get on a plane to come all the way on the other side of the globe to do a talk for me as the keynote at my conference, Univation, I think I can get the university to cover your flights and you go kiteboard, you know, all week. <laughs> and I said, well, sure. And so I came out to uh, speak at Univation and that, that, uh, and I did, I did kite, uh, you know, Margaret River, uh, all, all the way down South to Margaret River, kited Leighton Beach, went all the way up to, uh, uh, I think it's Esperance or, uh, uh, Geraldton, Leighton Beach and, or yeah, Geraldton and, uh, um, you know, kind of basically really enjoy the coast. And then I ended up doing my talk at, at Curtin. And that was, uh, 
a first and wonderful magical experience and i was determined to come back after that yeah well okay that that was going to be my next question what made you stick around and, and keep coming back well you know the right at that time i was uh, so i i had been i started in venture capital in 1991 so you know, at the time of this podcast recording, it's been like 30, 30 years of funding companies for me. By that time, which uh, was roughly 2011, I had already been in the game for, you know, two decades. And earlier in my career, I, I used to fund a lot of things very tightly coupled with my original background, you know, kind of computer chip companies, and then hardware companies, internet infrastructure companies. But by that time, I was funding a lot of uh, what people would call Web 2.0 companies. So applications and mobile things built on top of the internet infrastructure. And the, the entire field had changed. The funding targets had, had shifted from what used to be you know 50-person hardcore engineering teams building heavy equipment to one or two or three typically young kids working out of their dorm rooms, coding things up. And I had funded, uh, you know, effectively a one-person company in TweetDeck and a one-person company in Tango Video. Uh, I was just in the process of putting together this, you know, seeding of treasure data in Zoom and, you know, young companies like that. And when I was at that conference with Larry, um, it just occurred to me that, wow, you know, guys like Mark Zuckerberg, who had founded Facebook in a dorm room at Harvard, were mo and moving to California, they were like, you know, sole founders. I was funding a lot of sole founders, and I thought, you know what? Anybody can code something up in their dorm room, and I'll bet somebody in this audience is going to do the same thing. I should find out who that is. So at that conference, um, I ended up uh, concluding that I should throw a little startup competition, um, bring a bunch of my friends, tech people from Silicon Valley that like to kite, to Perth to enjoy the you know the water the water with me, and throw a contest, and that if uh, if we could throw a contest and provide a really fun prize, and in this case it was you know, we wanted to provide some free hosting, that um, maybe I'd smoke out a couple of interesting people, and it it worked. Who who were those people? Can you remember who the people companies were that you? Well, Larry, that's the trip I think where I met Melanie Perkins. Got Larry introduced me to, you know, a young woman named Melanie Perkins who showed up in a suit who who wanted to convince me to hear her out on uh, what she was building. And she had at the time that uh, company called Fusion Books that some people may have heard of. But uh, that uh, that trip and the discussions with Larry, introduction to Rowan McDougall, um, ended up in me forming a contest with Larry and Curtin called uh, the Western Australia App Awards. In that contest, we basically invited students from Curtin, UWA, ECU, and Murdoch to enter with ideas around mobile apps. And it was kind of a more of a student kind of thing. But that contest ultimately grew in scope and size to include not just university students. It was renamed the OZAP Awards a few years after that. And then uh, much later became the uh, the genesis block for what uh, today is a worldwide startup competition that I helped start called the Extreme Tech Challenge, which now partners with 21 conferences around the world, draws about 4,000 
entrance and has produced a bunch of companies with um, good products and good momentum now. That, that's the one that at some point, I don't know if it still does, but culminated in a pitch to Richard Branson on Necker Island. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Richard Branson is also a very good kiteboarder. Uh, of course, he lives on an island. So, you know, he's uh, with wind, you know, part of the part of the year. So he's quite good at that. And um, I had been throwing uh, kind of kiteboarding outings where a bunch of tech entrepreneurs would show up on Necker or hang with Richard and kiteboard. Uh, so that ultimately did become at one point uh, part of the finals. So I, I, the Extreme Tech Challenge at one point was, uh, it moved from sort of mobile apps to consumer technology in general, partnered with the Consumer Electronics Show, which is one of the world's largest um, electronic shows focused on consumer tech. We would hold the semifinals at the CES, Consumer Electronics Show, um, pick out kind of 10 companies among the pile of entrants, and then three of those would go on to pitch uh, Richard Branson and a bunch of other very uh, accomplished judges on Necker Island, you know, kind of a one-year cycle. The contest would be an annual, held annually, and it was um, it, it's quite a blast. Uh, more recently, I pivoted that contest to partner with the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals. So rather than just being a kind of commercially driven it's now a contest that draws thousands of companies who are focused on building products that are good for the planet and its people and the environment that can do well, uh, profitably do well, also while doing good for this world. I want to rewind to that kiteboarding and, and Melanie Perkins story just for a second. What were your first impressions of her and, and the pitch? Because you were an early investor in Canva. Yeah, I so you know I found her to be very, um, very, just a kind of a strong person. She seemed to have a lot of you know like spunk, you know, a, a kind of a a great spirit, very fearless, uh, and she had a, a fascinating and big idea. During that kind of couple year period, I was I was also very convinced that changes occurring to internet infrastructure, meaning what we today call the cloud, we're going to change fundamentally a lot of industries. And uh, in the 94, 95 timeframe, I had founded an internet service provider that ultimately shifted to become a data center company. And we had data centers in uh, 10 countries throughout Asia. So I had a lot of insight into the cost structure of those kinds of businesses. And the kinds of things you could do in the more current era with things like uh, you know Amazon Web Services and the ability to spin up servers and store things you know in the cloud versus locally, and as she described to me what she wanted to do, it struck me that the cloud was going to change design in the same way that it was going to change video. You know, I was about to fund Zoom and uh, other kinds of things, you know, so, so cloud Hadoop was treasure data, cloud video was Zoom, cloud design would be Canva. And there were very large companies in each of those spaces that I thought were vulnerable because their business models were higher costs and not as scalable. And in this particular space, Adobe at that time was worth about $30 billion. And the problem that you've heard Melanie describe often, 
meaning that you know at the time you would have to pay thousands of dollars for a bunch of software that was delivered to you in a box on a CD-ROM, load it up, and then take classes for thousands of dollars for weeks to learn how to use it. That just made no sense to me, as explained by Melanie. And it made a lot of sense to me that you, you, you could see products coming through your browser at that point that were more modular, more incremental, that could be fully loaded with a ton of features coming at you later as you learn the product through the web. And so when she described what she wanted to, to build, to me, it just made a lot of conceptual sense. And I think my only question to her was, oh, are, can you build this? And she's not technical in that way. She's not a uh, coder. So she said, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not the person that can build this myself. You know, can you help me find that? And that turned into a conversation about, can you help me find a technical co-founder? You know, I, and I said, hey, you know, if you're ever in California, look me up. You know, if you can find somebody good to help build this, I might fund, fund you. And that's how that, uh, that dialogue started and ultimately concluded with uh, us together leading, uh, you know, down a path to find a technical co-founder who was great and is great. Uh, did you have a hand in, in the introduction between her and Cameron? Uh, yes. Uh, well, indirectly, yes. Um, so when she did come out to California, I did make a, a bunch of introductions to people that I knew were in kind of like CTO circles. And the main one that ended up being productive in this case, and I think several others ended up investing in Canva too, uh, but the main one, the main good lead was an introduction to Lars Rasmussen. Uh, I had thought of Lars because Lars had built Google Maps in Sydney. And people may not know that story, but he had a wife at the time or a girlfriend or wife that was not able to get a visa to enter the United States. So he moved from the Netherlands uh, to, uh, to Sydney and started a company that was acquired by Google to become Google Maps. And over the course of years, built up an engineering team of hundreds, launched Google Maps, Google Wave, a bunch of other enterprise search-related products, and uh, had a big base of you know, talent there. So I thought immediately, wow, you know, Lars probably, if there's anybody that might have a good person in their Rolodex, it's going to be Lars. And it so happened that he had been trying to get me to fund a company that was going to compete with Gmail. It was a smoother, slicker, nicer email client in a company that at the time was named Fluent. And Cameron Adams was one of the co-founders. Uh, another friend of mine was running Gmail. And when I got to understand the economics of running Gmail through my friend who I wanted to poach to, out of Google to team up with Cameron and crew, he ultimately decided not to do that. And with that, I ultimately decided not to fund that company and no one else funded it then either. And then Cameron was free. And so Lars ended up pairing him up with Mel and Cliff. Yeah, I love how this, because I've interviewed Cameron and, and a bunch of other people from that kind of, from the Wave yeah. team. And I love how this story is fitting together. Yeah. Like, I'm always thinking about how, how I'm going to make this documentary work. And I just love it when there's stories like this that are told and it just kind of all, it's like a puzzle that just fits mm -hmm. together nicely. Why did you want to become an investor? And what do you think, like what, what makes you so good at it? 
Uh, well, so I remember when LSI Logic, when I when I looked at you know that first startup that I was at, it became a public company, and when I looked at the IPO prospectus, I saw that there were you know all the executives in the company that I knew, you know like the CEO, the VP of marketing, etc., who had good stakes in the company, and there were a couple of other folks that I didn't know that had very big stakes in the company. One was uh, was Don Valentine through Sequoia Capital, who was on our board. The other was Tom Perkins of Kleiner Perkins, who was also on our board. And uh, and and I was like, well, how did they, you know, get those stakes? And then I started to understand what they did to fund the company, help build the teams, and you know, help guide the business. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And that was my first exposure to, you know, what is a venture capitalist? Like, what, what do they do? What are their roles? And then uh, later, I had gone to Harvard Business School. And when I got out of Harvard, I started to get more into the financial side of building businesses and decided that um, I wanted to, you know, to go do that. And so I, I was still interested in starting companies, and I still do start companies now on occasion. But um, I found venture to be a wonderful platform for me because I have a kind of a broad purview. I can see a lot of things. I can I meet a lot of people. It's just my my personality is is quite uh, gregarious, and I I was able to leverage kind of you know natural interests and curiosity in what's coming next with uh, the mapping of people and teams to to meet those markets. And I had enough, you know, working knowledge of finance to know how to put these things together. So that that's how I kind of got into it. And over time, I think it's just, you know, I've been doing this for so long. A lot of the entrepreneurs I fund, I've been doing venture longer than they've been alive. <laughs> wow. Uh, you're in a very unique position to have seen like the growth and evolution of the U.S. ecosystem and then and also coming here in uh, the early 2010s seen a lot of the Australian ecosystem evolve. Can you draw any parallels or uh, just make a co- any comments on the observations you've made between the differences between the two ecosystems? Yeah, well, I can tell you that, you know, when I, I, had, I had been to Australia like on vacations before the Great Barrier Reef and some other places. Um, but uh, when I got to Perth and was in that university setting with Larry, um, having just been, you know, out on the beaches, I said, I think I said to Larry, I said, you know, Larry, this reminds me of what California must have been like 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, except I said, it, it has, it has a, a, some advantages. I said, you know, if you took California and you, you turned the gray water turquoise blue, you turned the brown sand beaches to white sand beaches, and you raise the air temperature by about 10 degrees, that's what you'd have. And I said, this place just rocks. I said, I love it here. And the spirit felt very open to me um, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of uh, a lot of young people, because I was at the university setting that, you know, just wanted to go and and make their mark. And um, uh, I think there were different kinds of industries, you know, kind of more natural resource mining in Perth and California, which at the time had, uh, when I came out to California, it was mostly orchards with some defense companies. But I thought, you know what? There's no reason that you couldn't have 
a good startup ecosystem here. It just feels right. It feels like the environment's right. The uh, a lot of the bigger companies today actually do testing. Like you know, Apple before they launch products will test them first in Australia and New Zealand um, because the uh, demographics and usage are similar to the bigger Western markets, and they can do it in a contained way. So I said, you know, why couldn't you just try it out here, you know, and, and see, see what, what might happen. And when we threw that first startup competition, and I remember telling Rowan, I said, Hey, Rowan, look, I don't know what's going to happen, right? How do, how do we can't, we could never guess whether we're going to get five entrants or 20 entrants or a hundred entrants, or if they're going to be any good. But if there's ever a time to do this, it's now. And so Rowan took a shot, you know, he took it, took a chance on it and we launched that contest and, you know, lo and behold, it worked. What do you think are some of the challenges that from your perspective that Australia faces now? Uh, you know, the, the challenges have changed over time and I'd say it, it's gotten a lot easier these days than at, you know, obviously any other time that, that I'd been coming back and forth. When I first came out to Australia uh, in the kind of 2010, 2011 timeframe, there wasn't as much willingness for experienced people to, to choose what appeared to be the high risk reward path of startups uh, versus traditional companies. And there was definitely a gap in the market for funding. So I think one of the strong advantages that Silicon Valley has always had is um, is a number of funds that existed because they somehow got lucky enough to be in um, a role to invest in the many companies that have worked out here. And so, you know, once you know what can happen, it's a lot easier to try again. And it's, you know, getting past that first bump that uh, that matters. And I think the when I had come out, Atlassian was still not yet a public company. And there weren't really there, there wasn't yet an example of an Australian born and led company that was world dominating in its category. I mean, Atlassian was already kind of dominating its category, but was still relatively small, not yet publicly listed. So people didn't really know who it was. And uh, so the, there wasn't the confidence um, that it could be done. And uh, I think after Atlassian got public and Mike Cannon Brooks and crew got, you know, better known. Uh, I think the, the world's liquidity and funding also kind of got better and better as interest rates have fallen over the years and capital became more available and willing to experiment. And then a couple of, you know, examples happened where there, there were good outcomes, uh, and then the funding ecosystem developed. And you've probably met Rick Baker, I think of Blackbird Ventures, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Rick, I got to know Rick also in the, I think, 2008, 9, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 period when he was building the uh, fund of funds practice for uh, MLC, which is a part of NAB Bank. And uh, what a fund of funds does is they basically aggregate larger capital. And in, instead of investing directly in startups, they'll invest in venture funds that then invest in startups. So Rick was building up his practice by picking out leading Silicon Valley venture firms to fund. And the General Motors Pension Fund, which had invested in my fund at the time, introduced me to Rick because Rick was a windsurfer. 
And then Rick basically learned how to kiteboard with me. And then over over the years, um, we I I end he left and started Blackbird, and I was I may be one of the I'm pretty sure I'm either the first or second or third person that committed to put money in his fund. So my DNA is a little bit in that ecosystem too. Uh, Rick and I ended up um, funding a couple of uh, startups: Posse, Shoes of Prey, Canva. Uh, I think we're together. We're the first investors in Safety Culture. So that pairing, you know, he, he's been great because I, I needed help from somebody that understood the ways of Silicon Valley, but that was local in the Australian ecosystem, which is why I was very happy to write a check to Blackbird when they got started. So I guess I've, I've rambled a bit, but I'd say uh, the things that have changed, there are now examples to inspire people that, that can tell them, hey, you know, it can be done. Uh, to give them their confidence, you know, to take the first steps, the the layers of early stage funding beyond seed um, now exist, and there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of other re- uh, resources available to young people. It doesn't have to be young people, but often it's young people. There's a lot of resources available to the people starting companies through the variety of uh, communities or startup accelerators like, you know, Space Cubed or York Butter Factory or, you know, the kind of the startup Australia groups in uh, Sydney. Do you think we're on the right track? And and like, what's next? What what do you think we needs to happen next for us to kind of get to that next level? Yeah, I think I do think, you know, uh, the, the Australian startup economy is on the right track. I think a lot of things had to shift to allow it to even exist beyond the things I described. I think if you think about the progression of technology waves that people can try to ride, the foundational waves around, you know, designing computer chip and and creating what became Silicon Valley, that's a very different game than building a Canva or a, an Atlassian. You know, you need hundreds of people that are trained in semiconductor physics and computer design in certain key fields. And they kind of in that era had to be in one place. And so I think in that era, what would happen is people with that kind of skill or talent or knowledge would leave wherever they were and move to California to go build these computer chips, because that's the only place you could do that. And then as, um, as that wave kind of matured and then you could build computer products and communication systems like routers and switches and hubs and and then build internet, um, that also was largely a heavy team, heavy capital uh, business model that existed pretty much in Silicon Valley. And then I think once that infrastructure was built out and you could access it from anywhere through a browser, then the game changed. So when I was talking about, you know, kind of, you know, funding any kid in a dorm room, Mark Zuckerberg was evidence of that at the, at the you know, while he did pick up to move to California, um, he didn't necessarily have to. It was better for him because it was easier to scale a business in California than other places. But uh, I think the startup part of getting a business off the ground became frictionless and abstracted once the World Wide Web got built out for that kind of business. It's still likely the case that it's quicker to scale a company in California because there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that had already done what you want them to do at companies like Yahoo and Google and Facebook and 
you name it. Uh, those kinds of ecosystems for scaling are not yet super mature in other countries. Uh, but I think getting them off the ground and growing them at lower cost structures in nice uh, you know, environments like Australia has proven to work. You know, the cultures and cost structures at Atlassian Canva are, are great and very sticky. You know, it might take a little bit longer to deliver on things, but um, if they're started right, those teams can still win. So I think, you know, things, are st things have been falling into place. Yeah, when you say other countries aren't as mature as Silicon Valley, what needs to happen? To, is it just time? Is it just successful exits um, and, and reinvesting back into the ecosystem to, to help it grow to get to that maturity level? Uh, well, it, 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 yes and no. I think, you know, those things are a kind of like, you know, the, there's the necessary and there's the sufficient kind of, you know, the it, what's necessary versus sufficient. And I think those kinds of things are necessary I think the the other thing that has to happen, that has to continue to happen, is the entrepreneurs have to be on the right wave, right? So I think where things where things differ, I'd say, are you know things worked out in Australia because of the confluence of cloud, mobile, internet access, those kinds of things put Australia on equal footing with respect to starting companies in the sweet spot of what could grow at the time that it did. I think now going forward, there's a big push, at least at the time of this podcast, around uh, blockchains, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs. And so I'd say if there's uh, a lot of intellectual curiosity from the entrepreneur crowd to stay at the leading edge to be where others are not yet or at parity with other areas that are coming into a space, then there's a shot. But you know, you, you cannot be behind a wave and ride it. So I think it's uh it's it's a combination of the things that we talked about, plus, you know, putting yourself in the right place. That's a great analogy. You can't be you can't ride the wave if you're behind it. Um, well, I'll add on to that because I do, you know, as I give talks on this subject, I do use the analogy of surfing a lot because I think, and particularly in Australia, everyone's tried to surf probably. And so, you know, if you think about, you know, your surfboard is your resource as a startup, you're paddling out into the water. And if there are waves, you can either be in front of one by a lot, you know, or be on it, or you can be behind it. And if you're behind it, there's no possible way to paddle up the back and drop in, and someone else is already there, so you can't be late. If you're too far out in front and you paddle too much, you're just tired when the wave actually comes. So, you know, I use this phrase, being early is a lot like being wrong. It feels a lot like being wrong. And then I'd say if, you're, if you time it right and you see the wave coming, all you have to do is paddle once. So the expenditure of energy is not that much. It's it's very efficient, and you start to go with it, and then you steer, right? So I think a lot of the proper uh, positioning and building of a startup or riding a wave is the same. It's kind of getting into the right position so that the energy you expend, whether in people or capital, is spent efficiently. And if you can do that right, you're going to be fine. So there's just, there's a, a another phrase which is you know I'd rather be lucky than smart and sometimes you can be an entrepreneur where you're working on something a little bit weird but suddenly the market wants it and you get hit in the head with a two by four of luck you know and that and by the way that happens a lot in Israel where you have a lot of defense spending on arcane interesting powerful technologies and then suddenly they find a home in a market 
you know, but uh, but rather than relying on luck in the, you know, I'd rather be lucky and smart than smart, I always say, well, being smart is putting yourself in the path of luck. So so back to the prior topic we just had, I think, to the extent that entrepreneurs can see what's coming, be prepared and put themselves in the path so that the chances they get hit in the head with a two by four of luck are a lot higher. That helps you a lot. And I think, uh, in a way, that's what Melanie did. You know, she built up to it over almost, a, you know, a decade or a half a decade, but she always knew what she wanted and her timing was great when she entered. Uh, are there any Australian startups that we should keep an eye on in, in the crypto slash blockchain space? Um, you know, there are a couple of protocol companies that that have been coming up. Um, you know, I don't know them well enough to name names and endorse things here yet. You know, so so there's there's a little bit of activity, but I I, I do think as I talk about this segment as a you know kind of a big wave, there's a lot of talent in Australia that I think could be quite applicable to this wave, particularly in the area of of game design. You know, because there's a lot of kind of studio work that gets done to develop video games and online games and things like that. And there's there's quite a crossover of online game activity and the metaverse. And, you know, what with uh, Facebook's recent renaming, you know, that's kind of a sign, right? I mean, there are communities online, whether they're playing games or not. Um, you can call them metaverses or you can call them, you know, online communities or online games or whatever. But venture is entering a phase now where folks like me are not just looking to fund a product. We're looking to fund what can be a microeconomy or a virtual nation. You know, you look at things like Roblox. Yeah, that's an online game, but it's really an economy, right? It's it's people around the world that are borderless that it transact and have economic activity. And that's where they make their money. You know, so I think a lot of the a lot of the big hits that we will see for the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to come out of that transition towards funding virtual nations, communities, metaverses, economies, as opposed to a product. I'm really interested in that space myself. Uh, almost last question, I think, and this is a two-parter. I normally ask people your one piece of advice for brand new founders, but I'd also like to ask you what you look for as an investor in new founders and startups? You know, the one piece of advice would be pick a good market. When I started in venture, I had a wonderful piece of advice from Don Valentine, who was on our board at LSL Logic and, and uh, ended up starting Sequoia Capital. Um, he told me, he said, look, it's pretty simple. You got to get the right market, the right team, and don't overpay. And if you think about each of those components, he said, if you get a bad market and a great team and infinite money, you'll lose money every time. So so just make sure that you're in a good market that's, you know, coming and on time and and big. Uh, so I'd say, you know, really think about the market you're in and how to enter it. And then I'd say uh, what I look for, I'd say it's those three things. You know, give me a big market that's undergoing structural change where a small company has an advantage over a big one, they, an incumbent that has a lot of legacy stuff. And then give me an entrepreneur that has good judgment. And if uh, if those two exist, the money will always come. So the financing risk of projects, um, you know, it's it, you can you can uh, deal with that if you have 
the other risks contained, right? So, so if you think about starting a company, you have market risk, management risk, funding risk. If you have a great market and a great team, the money will always come as long as it's not overpriced. Like it's a kind of uh, self-imposed issues if you have funding risk in that kind of a situation. But if you have a bad market, even if you have a good team, it's sometimes hard to raise money, mm. right? So you really need a great market, great team. Keeping in mind that we're really trying to create a documentary here that will holistically and honestly tell the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. I want founders, academics, investors, policymakers, people from all corners of the ecosystem to listen to this story. What do they need to hear from from Bill Tai? Yeah, you know, I'd say the the world is changing all the time, as we know. And I think what we're experiencing today is the deconstruction of the structures and, you know, kind of the big company model that has existed for the last hundred years. And we're moving from an economy of digging things out of the ground with big capital equipment to moving ones and zeros around screens. And the granularization of the economy is right right in front of us. And there's so many opportunities that are so much lighter and more profitable than the kinds of things that your parents and their parents worked on that we're entering a golden age. This, it's, it's really, really fun because you can put teams together, connected on Zoom anywhere in the world, working on cool stuff. If you, have, if you can demonstrate a little bit of thought leadership and aggregate some good people around you you know and and i think we're also in a period where there's so much money around it's it feels hard to get it as a startup until you've got a little traction but it's there and if you have a good idea execute well um, with a good team all kinds of money is going to flow so if there's ever been a time to try it's now I'm sorry. I I have one more question because I just I just hear your passion and excitement for for technology. I don't know if it's just technology or if it's ideas or but but what kind of world are you looking forward to over the next thirty years? Like looking back at how far we've come with technology over the last 30, you know two three decades, what excites you about the future? Uh, you know, I see a world where there's a much more egalitarian participation by broader groups of people where it's it's not as uh, controlled and centralized and you know this does bring up a much a kind of a much longer discussion but you know when I think about how humans have evolved over you know hundreds of thousands or millions of years if you think back to sort of like you know tribes and the cavemen days you know you 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 lived a life where your job, was multiple jobs during the day, every day, paired up with different groups of people whenever you were inspired to do something. You know, you might have a handful of people you went and picked berries with for a little while and a different group you went and hunted with, a different group you went fishing with, you know, different group to tend a garden, whatever. And you were quite flexible all day. And it wasn't really until the Industrial Revolution, the invention of machinery, which has benefited mankind for sure, Uh, and the concentration of capital and oil to power those machines, that we entered a couple hundred year period of heavy centralization where he who controlled capital controlled the machines 
and therefore controlled marginal productivity and all the money. And they were in that era, you know, the idea of the kind of the robber baron that could, you know, put up the big company and take people and turn them into monkeys turning cranks on the assembly line to only do one thing, not many things. You know, we kind of dehumanize people to, to generate capital for a few. Now we're in this mode where there's an ability for really anybody to spin up a company through a web browser, reach communities all over the world. You're not bounded by geography and you're not really limited by capital because the cost to put up a business isn't the same. It's a, you don't have to you know, build gigantic factories anymore. So the startup baseline is kind of just, uh, it's a lot more even now. And I think we're moving into a world where you, you, know, you see it, the young people today, they don't work on one job. They work on four or five different things a day and they work on the things that are productive to them at the moment. So we're kind of returning to how humans were meant to be. And the marginal productivity is no longer controlled by he who controls the capital, but it's he who can lead others on the web and can drive things using electrons, not you know long chain hydrocarbon molecules that if you use them, you pollute the earth. You know, so I think we're we're moving into a you know cleaner, greener, flatter, more participative economy, where people aren't controlled and centralized anymore. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.